0: Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's broadcast. Today is an interesting day. We have a panel discussion for the first time on the uh, endourology podcast series. Uh, It's going to be on education for how does one learn prostate enucleation and what is needed to sustain a successful program. Today, we have three leaders in the field, and I'm uh, very excited for them to join, and I'm very appreciative of their time. First, we have Dr. Nicole Miller, She's the Professor of Urology and Fellowship Director of Endourology and Laparoscopic Surgery at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. Nicole, welcome and thank you. Thank you. Dr. Marwan El-Tayyib is the Chief of Urology at Baylor Scott & White Hospital in Temple, Texas, and the Clinical Associate Professor of Urology at Texas A&M and Baylor College of Medicine. Marwan, thanks for your time. Thank you. And Dr. Michael Polisi is the Saul and, and Margaret Berger Endowed Chair of Urology and Professor and Chairman of Urology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Uh, Michael, welcome and thank you very much. Thanks so much hmm. for having me. So all three of you are experts in prostate enucleation. Um, you've certainly uh, contributed an immense amount of uh, material to the field and you're all recognized uh, in this area. What I wanted to do is pose to you three different scenarios, and we'll go over each one separately, that I think have to do with kind of education, sustainment, uh, maybe skill acquisition, and and how we really get this procedure in as many hands as possible, but also make it safe for our patients and durable for as many people as we can. I'll start off uh, with Dr. Miller. So the first scenario, a small private practice group has no one doing prostate enucleation. How do they start a program where none of them have formal training, and how do they ramp it up to be successful and, and again, safe for their patients?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question, because I think we commonly encounter um, physicians who are interested in adding laser enucleation to their uh, their offerings to their patients. and. Um, I I think the first thing that that group would have to ask themselves is is the goal to have one person that is uh, facile in the operation um, and therefore then has the support of the others, uh, because I think that would actually be the best way to start a program, uh, because one of the things that's really necessary, I think, to overcome the learning curve in laser nucleation is having um, not only... A repetition in cases, but a, but a case volume that can support overcoming learning curve. So you can't do, uh, you know, one BPH case a month and um, expect that the learning curve w- it will be easy um, for you. I think um, in the perfect scenario, what would happen is one person would be selected to learn the operation, um, and the cases. We're becoming from the partners. Um, and then once that person's facile, then I think then they can teach their other partners. But um, let's say that that's the scenario where there's three or four private practice urologists and they all decide there'll be one person that's going to, to learn hole up first or learn a laser nucleation first. Um, I think the best next step um, is to Spend some time watching surgical videos. I really believe that there is something to be gained um, by a, by watching videos, and we see that in all facets of urology. And there's different ways and te- different techniques to do a nucleation. So I think in that sense, um, seeing. Um, the different steps of the operation, having it broken down for you. There are uh, various places on, on uh, educational um, platforms where you can watch the operation. There are amazing videos on YouTube. There, there are semi-live surgeries that are recorded and accessible. Um, I just did a semi-live um, hole up procedure with uh, MOSES technology for the AUA, and um, that will be available to to watch. And so I think watching surgical videos is a good first start. There's also incredibly good uh, hands-on training sessions. There was just a large BPH course at the AUA. Um, There are other courses that are being um, offered throughout the country. Um, where you can come for a couple of days, learn some didactics about the operation, but then really get into the lab and start working with simulators. That's the, the least stressful environment, I think, to to learn. Now, that brings up a really good question. How good are the simulators that we have? Well, I think if you had asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said to you that we, we haven't come very far. But I think as of recent, um, you know, Ahmed Ghazi, who... Um, is has developed a really nice uh, hole simulator and really nice model that's very similar to the texture and the layers that you would see in a real case. Um, the, that model, I think, has the potential to not only be very good for simulation and for learning this operation, um, but also for potentially um, accrediting uh, surgeons to, to be proficient. Um, in a nucleation. And then last, I would say actually coming and spending time with a high-volume pull-up surgeon is invaluable. Coming to a center, watching cases being done, asking all the nitty-gritty questions that are necessary for the parts of the operation. And then when possible, having um, reciprocation where someone could come and proctor you for your first cases. And I, I have certainly done that. Um, in my uh, my years doing this operation. that's that's what I would say are the perfect you know four steps.
0: Sure. so I mean, we just had Dr. Gazia as our visiting professor and he brought his own models with him. and so it enabled our residents to uh, use these models. It really is uh, pretty astounding uh, what they've done in their lab and that he's going to be bringing over to Johns Hopkins um, now what what are your thoughts or and the whole group can certainly chime in what are your thoughts on? You know, for forever, we've had in urology kind of these, quote, weekend courses. You know, you go to, you learn the the robot, you can learn a robot prostate in, you know, 48 hours and then go home and you can do amazingly, you know, you can do five prostates and do them perfectly. Um, is that really a, a good training, even in conjunction with the the pre-training videos and the post-training observerships and such? Is it time that we maybe get some kind of like three-month observerships or or one or two month kind of things as opposed to, uh, you know, kind of the weekend course. Uh, that's one question. And the second one is what are your thoughts on hiring or, or trying to get either a fellowship trained uh whole lip or uh, versus someone who just finished their residency, but in a very high volume residency, I welcome any of those comments.
1: Marwan, do you want
0: to? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it's kind
2: of you know. I don't think that uh, weekend courses specifically for law will will uh, will work great. And and the reason behind that, there are a lot of levels of complexity in the procedure. It's kind of a, a skill set that uh, needs a special uh, uh, preparation and and uh, uh, kind of lineup in cases that uh, are perfect to start your program. So. Uh, it, it it can it can help, but it would not be the only thing that can be uh, uh, done. Um, so in in our experience and how we uh, proctored uh, uh, other surgeons, uh, they would watch a uh, videos similar to what Nicole had uh, mentioned and uh, they would come to my institution and we line up uh five cases a day. Uh, on a couple of days, like uh, a and a Friday. So five cases on Thursday, five cases on a Friday. And then they would go home and line up uh, what we call a standard um, prostate case. So they would line up three or four cases uh, with a volume of 60 to 80 grams. Uh, and they line up three or four of these a day. And uh, I would either go and, and proctor them uh, through these cases uh, or um, somebody else would go and proctor them, and and that kind of protocol worked great. Uh, it led to um, uh, adherence to doing the procedure, but more importantly is that the support of the group to funnel these perfect size prostates uh, in the beginning, uh, which is very important because what we see and and it is a problem that a uh, kind of surgeons get very comfortable in the beginning in the first 10 cases and then they start putting big size prostates uh like 150 or 200 gram and that's a problem because i don't think it is uh okay to start doing these cases except like before like 50 cases at least just to get very comfortable and get your hands wet and and all that uh So it's very important to have the support of your entire group and they would be rooting behind you and funneling you this kind of perfect size prostate. Uh, But the courses are, they can help. But um, I think that it's very important to have a a proctorship program or a mini fellowship program or or, or visit uh, like a high volume institution multiple days uh, a month just to get this going.
1: Okay,
0: very good. And uh, thoughts on whether you need a fellowship trained person versus someone who is a resident just graduating with a a fair number under their belt? Do you think there's a difference? Is there a. uh, I think fellowship trained
2: will be the best. Like, hiring if you are able to get one of these, that would be great. But uh, unfortunately, we are not producing uh, many of these fast enough. So. uh, uh, but uh, also a resident who is trained in a high volume institution like Vanderbilt or Indian University or with us at Baylor Scott and White will also work so it depends and also the skill set of the person as well that's also we we see sometimes fellows coming out but they are not very comfortable uh, still, they still needs that index case. They still needs that perfect size prostate. And we see some residency do do 20 cases during the residency and they come ready. Uh, so uh, the skill set itself is, is very, very
0: important.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think sometimes what we see is that um, the residents uh, will come as maybe PGY3 or PGY2, and then they may not do any enucleation for a couple of years. And, and, um, you know, that they, that that can't happen. I mean, just like you need repetition in cases if you're trying to learn this, you have to be doing them in your chief year. And then if you're going to go out and do them in practice, I really think.
0: Okay. All right, very good. Um, second scenario, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but I would like to try to maybe expand or, or try to get down into the weeds a little bit to really have some hard discussion on. Um, a private practice group has two or three people who do them. Uh, they think they can do them well. Uh, but they all do you know 10 or 20 a year and they don't have the high volume they don't really have um not all of them are doing you know six or seven a month that that might be uh, the number to to keep them competent how do we assure that they're proficient how do we maintain their skills um, how many procedures are required to maintain proficiency and expertise um and uh are there reimbursement implications as far as um, uh, with the procedure itself uh, in general. Uh, el you what do you think?
2: Yeah, so I always tell the residents um, 20 cases to be okay to start with, 20 cases to be okay, 50 to be comfortable, 100 to get yourself out of trouble, 200 <laughs> to get other people out of trouble. <laughs> So I always tell the residents that once you have these numbers, you're going to be fine or a fellow or a a surgeon. So, yeah. So it is very important in the first year out of practice, in the first year doing this to do the index case, 60 to 100 gram prostate. Try not to exceed this and have a repetition. Try to do every one of these cases uh, with a up it will be easier for you to do a TURB for a 60 gram prostate. You already have been doing that for years, but try to be consistent. Try to poke this case. Try to be, try to challenge yourself. And then you increase the size gradually. And, 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 and that's very important in, in the beginning of practice. Um, I think I, I kind of agree with Nicole regarding having one person funnel all the cases to him first or her first, in the first year, and after this person becomes proficient, then he can teach his partners. Uh, I think that's very very important, but multiple people trying to do it at the same time, I don't think it will work. Um, What was the other part of your question?
0: Um, I I, I threw it in there, the reimbursement implications. I'm not sure it really belongs in that scenario, but I I think um, Nicole may have had some comments about the, the reimbursement implications for this procedure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think, it, I think it can fit here really nicely because you're thinking about um a group where you have, have multiple surgeons who don't do a lot of the case. And so invariably what that's going to mean is that the case is going to take longer, likely, than they want it to. And let's face it, the more time we spend in the operating room, the more time or the less time that we're going to have to do the other things. And I really do think to some degree, when you're running a private practice or really any type of practice, t- time is he cuts your bottom line. Um, and so you would be more likely to give this up if it was taking you too long to do it. And so um, I think that one of the things that has frustrated me for years is that I don't feel like this particular this operation is reimbursed to the degree it should be for the technical skill that's required to do it and the durability of the outcomes, which are really better than any other BPH procedure that we have. Um, that being said, I don't see that changing anytime soon, Brad. <laughs> so <You'll bore>
2: it. <laughs> so
1: um, but it 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 plays to the question of commitment uh, to the operation and and um you know, I think if you're a smaller group, you really need to to be sure that you have at least one person that has high volume of cases um so that at least one person sticks with it and continues to do it, and that it doesn't yeah. really affect I- your process too much financially.
0: I think that's still a problem. I mean, I I think, you know, robotic surgery or perks or or whatever the procedure might be, I think we have a lot of residents who are very well trained. And when they come to a new group, they really want to, you know, kind of do everything. Uh, And then they have, uh, they come into a group where some of the partners are very good at at certain procedures and they want to do everything. And so they'll take everything on when when you potentially need to have one person, uh, maybe two people, depending upon the volume, who are really kind of um, categorized in these different procedures, where they can really be the expert in the group. I we still see that in, in surrounding groups of our of our academic practice, but uh, I, I still think that's a a hurdle to be had for many groups uh, to try to maybe tell some of the people in the group that they shouldn't do cases for a little while, while that one person is getting ramped up to be really truly the expert in the group. We have, we
3: have, I mean, we have precedent in neurology, right? I mean, if you look at laparoscopy, how that was sort of driven in uh, in the private practice world and also in academics, <clears throat> and the way it was brought about. So you had one or two people trying to do it, and then you had three or four because it became more and more popular. And I think this is very similar. You're you're going to start with a few experts in the area. They'll teach the other ones, and ultimately, if this really becomes standard of care, the gold standard, then more than one person should do it. I mean, I I kind of disagree that it should only be you know perhaps in the beginning, but as time goes on, this should be a standard skill like anything else, like doing a cystoscopy or doing a TERP, uh, and, and so that that's really what will drive or will will ultimately make the difference about whether this case uh, stands is there for standard of time. Um, obviously, reimbursement has a little bit to do with that. As we all know, the, something that's a little bit better reimbursed will, uh, will of course, uh, be pushed a little bit more forward. But look, terps—we're still doing terps sixty years later. I mean, so there's a, there's a reason it's still around, right? It's it's an outdated procedure, but it's not. It's still very much a, a gold standard procedure. And if ups or, or, or TULEP or any of these sort of a, a laser nucleation procedures are gonna are gonna stand the test of time, we'll 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 see it. We'll see that happen over time.
0: When is the last time any one of you did a terp?
1: Twenty years, residency. Six <laughs> months ago. Really?
2: Yeah, yeah. It still has a, it still has a role. Michael yeah, shaking cool. his head. Older you know, <laughs> <similar listen>, prostate. <laughs> it still has. If I if think. There there a fine procedure.
3: Sometimes you pull out a, a piece of a piece of equipment that makes more sense at that time <laughs> than doing something where uh, you know you're going to leave a resident, for instance, doing a case uh, where the, where you know you're going to take four times as long and you know, those kind of things. So there, there's, I think, there's still a role. Uh, and and certainly, if you look at the numbers nationwide, TERP is still very much, uh, very much uh, around. It's not hasn't gone anywhere.
2: Yeah, yeah. I do it mainly um, I, for the residents. I I kind of like having uh, the residents not to lose that skill set. Uh, so I, I think it's it's kind of for a lot of residents. They will be doing TERP once or twice a year or ten times a year whatever. I think they still need to keep that. So that's why I do it every once in a while.
0: I, I think Nicole has on her radar to completely make whole app. Le- applicable for every prostate known to man.
1: (laughs) No, so not true. Not true. Um, (laughs) it is a size independent option though. I will say that, but no, I mean, I, I will tell you, so so just to give you an idea, the case I did today at a patient, 102 gram prostate, three urolift procedures, 12 plus implants in the prostate all failed. And, you know, it, it, that that's, that's one too many mists in my opinion. And so, you know, I think, um, where you know, where Holt really shines is in that retreatment area. Um, I, you know, there's really very few prostates you can't salvage, um, with this operation.
0: Sure. Well, the last scenario, um, I, I think, uh, should generate a little bit of discussion. I hope I, I know Dr. Polisi, you've, um, Talking to you, you, you did hold up a long t- or excuse me, the, the, the laser nucleation a long time ago. And, and I guess um, you abandoned it or, or gave it up a little bit and you've kind of revisited it. Um, so I, I definitely want to have you incorporate your your personal experience in, in this question, but let's say an academic group, um, they do not have a program yet. Um, and uh, recruitment is difficult. I, I think we're all facing a little bit of challenge uh, in the recruitment uh, arena they need to start a program for their residents. What is the best recipe for initiating a prostate enucleation program where patients benefit, but residents also get the training they need for proficiency?
3: Well, I mean, obviously, especially in an academic institution or any kind of teaching institution, even even a large group practice, you want to find a champion like anything else. Uh, And so that champion, whoever that may be, should get proficient in the in this particular procedure uh whether that's through a fellowship or as we, as we talked about a little bit about a sort of a weekend course i guess you know i i still think a weekend course is a great introduction to at least just trying the equipment feeling around what's what's out there speaking to other uh, sort of the the mentors and other mentees who are there kind of getting a sense of what equipment they use get a lot of information from these basic courses um, I taught the AUA basic laparoscopy course for years and the advanced course. It was a great time to also get to know the equipment that was out there, the manufacturers would come there. So I still think those kind of courses have value and, and there's reasons to do that. So if you're trying to start a program, no question, that's always a great place to start. Then sending someone, that person uh, to a training facility where someone really does a lot, perhaps Nicole or 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 Marwan or anyone else that's, that's doing these. Uh, this is you know this is a great place to a great time to actually initiate or watch a master doing what they're doing, um, watching videos. Uh, look, I, I'm a big fan of the AOA videos and, and watching online and seeing how uh, other colleagues are doing things. I think uh, any anything uh, that uh, and that's one of the advantages of, of practicing nowadays is. We have the ability to watch ourselves on video. It's not like the old days where we're looking over someone's shoulder, deep into a hole, and trying to uh, trying to actually figure out what the operation is. And used to, you know, in Baltimore we used to call them fashion seal cases when you constantly look at the back of someone's head, looking at the fashion seal um, scrubs. And l- luckily, those days are over. We, we we actually do get to see what what our experts are doing on a regular basis, rather mm-hmm. than you know, oh look look here, look at this. Okay, we're gonna go back and we'll stick my head back in there so you can't see anything. So I I, I think you know. Again, uh, finding a champion, someone who is uh, willing to do that, to take on that responsibility, whether that person needs 10, 20, 50 cases to really get comfortable. Everyone has different thresholds. I mean, I've mean, i done studies before about what, what is that threshold for laparoscopy robotic cases. Same thing with whole lap, the, the, num- these numbers exist. Um, and it's, it really comes down to who what the expert level is. When that person is comfortable, teach, see one, do one, teach one. I think there's still some value in that.
0: And... What uh, you touched on it a little bit, Nicole, uh, for all three of you, though, the the role of simulators. Um, you know, Dr. Ghazi can't uh, possibly produce enough, uh, you know, um, models for everyone. Um, when we're talking about ongoing education and, and kind of um, uh, ongoing education for the residents and skills labs, what is the role of simulators going to be and, and how are we possibly going to be able to disseminate enough simulation for everyone to to uh you know get and maintain competency
1: yeah i mean i think one of the challenging parts is that uh for a nucleation there is part of it that i think requires sort of a haptic feedback like the for blunt nucleation especially you know knowing if it feels right when you're pushing the tissue although we're definitely moving towards particularly with on block nucleation, definitely using the laser more using blunt nucleation less. And so a little bit of a change of technique. Um, And so then it's more about seeing the plane and thinking, being able to think in 3d. And so maybe you don't need a physical model for that. Maybe there will be a way to make a non-physical simulator, but I think any simulator that allows you to even learn the hand motions is beneficial Um, And most of the, most of the residency programs or big institutions have these simulation labs. So having some type of simulator sitting there so that the resident can go there in their free time, just like they would go to learn robotic skills. I think that would be useful, but you're right. I don't, I don't feel like we have, we still don't have the perfect simulator. And I think Dr. Ghazi's model does the best job of simulating the actual tissue consistency, the layers and so forth. Um, But I'm not sure every person needs to have something that's sophisticated, um, you know, for learning.
3: So, you know, interestingly enough, I did a cadaver lab not too long ago, which actually I was surprised at how well it actually worked for training purposes, Um, especially because these are cadavers, but it, it actually is not a bad solution for these types of cases, uh, they're just obviously expensive, uh, and and the logistics for getting a case like that uh, done is not is not easy. But it's an option. Um, you know, they, I think that we don't really have a good animal model, and especially nowadays, doing animal models is actually pretty difficult anyway. Uh, just with the with the climate of getting those kind of cases, uh, getting those kind of courses done. Uh, but I think cadaver labs may be something to look at. You know, that might be
0: something that we may want to really consider uh, going forward here. <clears throat> the um i think we've all touched on it a little bit uh, all three of you kind of mentioned it um when someone begins these cases um it, it seems that the enormous prostates are probably not the best to start off with um but also the really small glands are probably not the best either the 50 to 60 grams are, are the, they have uh some challenges uh, themselves uh with this procedure um I just Discuss maybe the the absolute best candidate you can think of. Is it someone in retention or not in retention? Is it someone who's failed, you know, dual medical therapy, single medical therapy? Is it someone who's not been on medical therapy? Is it the hundred gram gland? Uh, is it the median lobe? Is it not the median lobe? Uh, maybe just touch on what what characteristics might kind of present to the the novice the best opportunity for success uh, in the patient they're presented. Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Um,
2: I think the reason I we always mention like the sixty to eighty gram is that the ability to bail out if things goes bad uh, during the case uh, that you still be able to finish the procedure, doing other like like doing a turb, doing a bipolar turb for the sixty to eighty gram or less than hundred gram, and you can still have like an exit safe plan uh, if you are not able to progress with the case. Um, Less than 60 grams or less than 50 grams, it's kind of the planes are challenging. Uh, Sometimes you are talking around the sphincter, it can be associated with some sort of complication in terms of incontinence afterward, if you're not expert. Uh, After 60 grams, the planes are developed, you can see the pseudo capsule perfect. And uh, anything above the 100 gram, you also running the challenge of of, um, uh, bloody prostate, Mm -hmm. impaired visualization. Uh, and, if it is an enormous size, which is anything above like 150, then you run into the problem is that you get into between, in between the prostate and the bleeding, and then, uh, trying to do a TURB on 150 gram prostate. If you want to bail out from a hole, it becomes extremely challenging and sometimes dangerous. Uh, and, and and that's important for trainees or or people starting doing this to understand, uh, is that in the first year always try to stick with the smaller sizes less than 100 grams 60 to 100 60 to 80 that's perfect um always have a turp equipment available in the room just in case uh you are not able to progress during the case always put a, t- uh, a timer for yourself uh do not do this whole ob- uh, for four or five hours. That's a dangerous situation. You are pulling the patient in, in danger here. So try to uh, do it for an hour. If you are progressing, that's great. Progress to the second hour and try to kind of wrap up the procedure within like, within two hours or within two hours and a half. Uh, if you are taking so much time, just kind of bail out, do the TURP. Uh, uh, starting cases with that has a median lobe, uh, always uh, have an advantage because you can try to enucleate the median lobe first. And then uh, progress to the lateral lobe, one lateral lobe, and then you can progress to the other lateral lobe if you are meeting your time schedule. Um, retention, I don't think it matters a lot. Uh, patient with fully will tend to have a little bit more bleeding or more inflamed prostate, but
0: I don't think it matter. It's more 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 important is the size. And prior medical therapy, like the you know finasteride and, and the five alpha reductase inhibitors, doesn't doesn't make a difference.
2: We did the study on the five, uh, of the five alpha reductase. Uh, the finasteride, is, does it uh, uh, increase any time of nucleation time or morcelation time? And we did not find any uh, difference. Uh, in terms of enucleation or morselation time. So I don't think it matters, uh, but it's always, you know, uh, it's always advisable. Like, you know, uh, if you see that perfect size prostate, still stick with the guidelines, do the medical survey first. If it's not working, then do uh, You know, it's not a good idea to just kind of schedule a patient for surgery first time to see him. So that's what I, I always uh, tell my residents. Sure.
1: I don't know. I think we're moving away from that. I really do. I think that there are patients that are going, right, to surgery and skipping medical therapy. If you listen to some of the experts in the field like uh Klaus Warburn and uh, Steve Kaplan and listen to the AUA plenary this this year, you know, there's increasing um awareness and evidence that we're probably keeping patients on medical therapy for way too long and then they're getting decompensated bladders and one of the, uh, you know, push for mists is to potentially skip medical therapy and be able to offer something that has low side effect profile and, you know, may, um, you know, patients don't want to be on medications necessarily. So Brad, you just heard me support the mists, okay? <laughs> so I'm not doing a whole of everybody everybody. <laughs> um, but no, I, as far as the, the best size processing. I couldn't agree more that the median lobe is, is a really nice, uh, facet for the, for your first cases, because in a lot of those patients, you could just take out the median lobe and they're going to do fantastic. Um, and so if you're learning and you feel like that three lobe technique works well for you, then taking the median lobe separate, giving you some space, that's really a great thing. Um, one of the things I would, uh, caution new learners Is in the patient with the high bladder neck because that is a very difficult case, even for uh, those of us who do a lot of it. And if you have really big uh, prostate, all lateral lobes, invariably that's going to be pushing up underneath the bladder neck, and that can be uh, technically more challenging to appreciate. You can get in no man's land, you know, pretty quickly. So that's your hundred grams and less, pretty planes and uh, median lobe, are a great start.
0: Great. Well, let me finish up with um, uh, maybe just uh, uh, where we are with the other modalities. So we've touched on it. we've discussed it a little bit. Um, is robotic simple prostatectomy warranted in the in in, in this era of uh, enucleation?
3: I mean, I can I can handle that because I do robotic simples. Uh, I'm I'm big fan of them. I think for the very large gland, uh, you're done in an hour, hour and a half. Uh, I, I'm sure Nicole can do a 400 gram uh, whole lap in, in an hour and a half, but you know, there's, there's very few people who can. Uh, I think of robotic simple is, it definitely has a role. Uh, it's more teachable. I mean, it, we certainly can get our residents and our fellows to do it and, and do it well, uh, quicker. Uh, probably to do a 400, 400 gram whole lap or two lap, you're, you're, gonna, you're talking about 500 plus cases before you get to that. Uh, I think if it's robotic simple, you certainly get quicker. So if we're talking about imparting a, a knowledge or a skill set
0: earlier for uh, for teaching purposes, no question you know robotic would make sense. okay. And uh, the um, the Eurolift uh, and resume and aquablation, um, you know, again we touched on it maybe maybe the patient who's not ready for for the bigger proce- you know the quote bigger procedure they just want something that uh, you know might tide them over and such. Uh, there's still a role for the missed therapies as you mentioned, Nicole.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there an the appropriately selected patients. Um, I think if you look head to head, the data of Resume versus Eurolift, I think the retreatment rate is lower for Resume. Um, and I think, again, again, that just has a lot to do with the fact that ultimately where you put the steam into the prostate, you're expecting to have tissue loss, where we don't probably see that as predictably with Eurolift. Um, with Um, but I, I think that they are procedures that are associated with few side effects and, um, and I just think it's setting expectations for patients. That's really, really super important. Um, I think if they feel like this is the procedure they're going to have and it's going to last them, you know, 10 years, that's probably not a realistic, um, expectation to set for them. And, um, you know, it's all, it's all about what they want and talking them through. Aquablation is, I, I think that, you know, for, for, for those who are considering trying to do something that's sort of similar to nucleation and can treat a variety of sizes of land without the, the learning curve, I think there's a role for aquablation. The prohibitive part is the cost associated with the system. And um, I think that would make it harder for, a, for, for someone to make it part of their uh, practice. Okay.
0: Well, great. Uh, look, I, I sincerely appreciate all your time and expertise. Uh, uh, great panel discussion. Um, any other closing uh, thoughts or, or comments that uh, need to be uh, addressed?
3: No, I just want to make a comment about the medical therapy and, and BPH. I, I was actually doing the resume plenary session. Actually, Nicole was right before me doing the uh, the, the whole session. Um, and one of the things that we did discuss is is exactly that, is is many more men are now choosing Uh, procedures over medical therapy, the adherence rate of things like Flomax, if you look at a long-term studies, is like thirty percent after twelve months or six to twelve months. It's it's sort of. I don't think we realize how many men actually just don't take their medications, and so this is a reason or a potential reason for us to look at other thoughts. Uh, and so you know, obviously, giving giving men choices, letting them know exactly what they're getting into or not getting into with each of these choices, I think is important. And then again, finding a champion for each one of these choices, right? We you know probably probably the reality is that we can't really do everything, and we really should find someone, especially in large groups or in academic groups, who are going to sort. To be the champions of each of these cases.
1: Thank you Fantastic. so much for the opportunity.
0: Well, okay, good. Uh, Dr. Miller and Dr. Taib and Dr. Palisi, I, I want to thank you all very much for your expertise and contributions. We look forward to the next uh, horizon and um, uh, thank you for your time. Thanks so much Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. I think it was a great talk. Thank you. on behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast